Not often a little guy like me has to raise things up, but there you go. <laughs> Great to be with you. And uh, I'm glad you made that announcement about uh, 12.15 because Jane starts doing this, you know. <laughs> she learned that from uh, what she was told about Vivian's ministry, so <laughs> I'm glad. Anyway, here we are. I better get on with it. Great to be at Boulevard Bible Chapel again. I don't want this to get to any of the other chapels around, but this is my favorite place to preach in South Florida. Just be quiet about it. Um, Right, now listen, you know what I've been doing. I've been talking about the Lord after he rose, the Lord who removes doubt, the Lord who restores us. We talked very personally about, uh, about Mary and Thomas and Peter. I want to talk broadly now. This is a great weekend. We're talking about witnessing, uh, concern for the lost. If you missed the conference yesterday, you missed a huge challenge. Uh, And I just want to pick that up. You know, on the front of your conference brochure, it said, Restore my passion for him, the Lord Jesus, and the lost. And thought, man, do I need that prayer? Do we all need that prayer? I know Jane said to me, she... Jane came out of the Salvation Army and married me and she said, where is your passion for the lost? Talk about us in our assemblies. And I worried about that. And I, and, and I think, it's, I was thinking of something else in the end. I thought, no, we've got to spend a day today talking about witnessing in troubled times. Because Micah told us yesterday about troubled times. And we sure have troubled times. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to go right back to the beginning. We're going to learn some lessons right from the early church, how they witnessed in Acts. And, and they were sure troubled times then. You think we got trouble now. So it's the Lord that calls us to witness that I want to focus on. And uh, hey, you know we got half an hour for a 10-point sermon. I usually have three points. Got ten. So you're ready for this. You fasten your seatbelt. And we're going to learn, tonight we're going to learn from Philip, fantastic example. But Stephen, the martyr, gave his life. So there's not a bigger chance than a man who gives his life for the witness of the gospel. They were troubled times, and I want to get into these. <clears throat> you know, since I retired from teaching at the university and going into the Lord's work, I've had a lot of opportunity to talk frankly with uh, professors and colleagues about the Christian faith. Not being the witness I should have been, but uh, I discovered one thing. I expected that most of these intellectuals say, what keeps me away from accepting God and Jesus is all these intellectual problems. I was very surprised. In fact, what I discovered, the main thing that stopped them accepting Jesus was actually fear of social rejection. I thought, well, it's not an intellectual problem. And I always thought, oh, if only they knew the joy of fellowship like we have. But you see, you know, many of you as Christians have known what it is to be regarded as a little suspect, a, a little different, maybe you're the oddball because you don't always laugh at the off-color jokes. Maybe you don't join the dodgy practice that they say everybody does. And so people kind of back away a bit. Now, that's minor compared with what we're talking about today. Acts 7 is a challenging chapter because it's a reminder that some will reject Christ. God gives us freedom. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but 
in many cases, Christians have to face violent rejection. And we, we don't see so much in North America. But actually, I want to remind you, the context of this chapter is persecution. And you look globally, and persecution is the name of the game, but it's not surprising. Persecution is something the Lord told us to expect. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, Matthew 10, Be on your guard, you'll be handed over to councils, you'll be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Very clear warning from the Lord. Now, this chapter is not about that minor social avoidance that you might know at work as you talk to your neighbours. Maybe you've experienced that. I think many of us have. No, no, it's about total rejection. Such extreme rage against the message of the gospel that Christ's faithful witness, Stephen, as you read, is cruelly killed by a crowd that's totally out of control. And they were enraged because their determined efforts to just stamp out this persistent witness of the early church totally failed. But if you remember what Jesus said about persecution, and you recall what Paul experienced, you won't be surprised at the total rejection of Stephen's defense. This is such an important thing. No Christian should be surprised to encounter persecution and rejection. In fact, listen to this challenging verse. This really challenges me. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, listen to this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, here's me. I, what, what I think about persecution is just the old colleague not speaking to me for a few days. I mean, I read this verse and I find this an enormous challenge. And I listen to some of the preachers out there, especially some of these TV preachers preaching prosperity and health and wealth and all that. And I think, what Bible are these prosperity gospel preachers saying, oh, come into your hands if you're faithful to God. What Bible are they reading? It's not what Jesus said. Uh, and what we see today, actually, in the growing persecution of the church, and I'm thinking globally, it started immediately after Christ's ascension. And it's still going on. You see, Christ, Stephen's persecution, Stephen's martyrdom, was not unique to the early church. It wasn't just an early church aberration. Now in North America, we don't see much of that. We're so blessed. But much of the world has to cope with this. Rejection of the gospel of the Christians it's a contemporary problem. Some of you have heard McClellan talking about FBH. I wanted to tell you again in some detail with pictures one of the stories he mentioned because it's very recent. And of course, FBH is headed up by Ron Hughes in my assembly and a very close friend of mine. And I worked with them for a number of years, as many of you know. Let me tell you what. A little detail about what Herb shared about four recent martyrs in Ukraine. I mean, these were young Christians. They were captured and brutally beaten to death. It was just 2014, very recent. And they were killed simply for being Christians. These young men, they were faithful Christians. They cared about evangelizing their countrymen. And they were just using personal witnessing. They were doing what I'm calling you to do, what I need to do. And there was an unbeliever, actually, a witness 
the, the beating of these men and, and he gave the details. They were actually taken to the fire station in the middle of the night. They were blindfolded with duct tape and they were beaten. And he said, when they, as they were beaten, they sang hymns. And their tormentors just shouted to them, our country doesn't need Christians. Anyway, they were told after the beating they could go home and, and one of the men, Victor, was still well enough to actually drive the car. So the guards put them in the car, but he actually followed them to a deserted stretch of highway. They forced them off the road. They wanted it to look like an accident. And this man, Victor, he was able to get out of the car and he, and, and he tried to run for it, but he was shot when he tried to escape. And nobody knew about this. It was when the Ukrainian forces retook the city of Slovence, they found the four bodies. And I've got to tell you, Herb mentioned about his wife. This is Victor with his wife, Natalia. A great couple, just like you and I. She has now opened a house as a house of hope, and she shares the gospel, encouraging people to find hope in the love of God shown to the death of Jesus. This is happening. I mean, there are a lot of stories like that. I got, I got clips I might have shown you about persecution in India and other places. I just want you to see this as a contemporary problem. Now, let's get into Stephen quickly, because he's an example of the way to do it in troubled times. Uh, we know, of course, from Acts 6 that Stephen was marked with grace and power. He was one of those seven deacons chosen. He had a routine job looking after the distribution of the bread. But he said he was filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. And that's number one. You, I'll remind you of all ten at the end. But number one is, our source of power in witness is the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit does what we can never do. You can never convict a sinful heart or move people to respond to God's call. You may think you've got slick techniques, but only the Spirit of God does that. Remember what you're dependent on. And so, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 and 8, look, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Just join in the suffering for the gospel. Suffering's there all the time, but it's by the power of God. And sometimes we forget this and we get our strategies. And we need to remember where our power comes from. Now I've got to get back to Stephen. I can't do a lot of detail, but you know, his defense before the Sanhedrin, it's the first inspired commentary on the Old Testament by a New Testament Christian. And it's very important. But it's much more than a factual account of the history of Israel. It is that. But it's a great example of witnessing. As you know from the previous chapter, verse 13, he was brought before the Sanhedrin through false witnesses. And he was accused of blasphemy against Moses and the law and the temple and God. In fact, by the time the charges were laid, the Sanhedrin focused on two main concerns, that he dismisses and threatens the temple, and he says Christ will destroy it. And he speaks against Moses and the Lord. That was their concern. They said in chapter 6, he never ceases to speak words against his holy place. And he says, Christ will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they were incensed about that. Now, there's a lot of stuff I could say, but I want you to notice where Stephen started. He started where all good witnesses should start. If you want to witness to the Lord, 
and about the Lord, start talking to people about things they're interested in. You've got to get their attention. It's what Stephen started with is what they had in common. He wanted to establish before this Sanhedrin that he knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures. They were agitated. They needed calming down. And he didn't immediately launch into his accusation. He had to do that. But he prepared them for the challenge that the Spirit was guiding him to make by talking about what they were interested in. And that's a lesson in our witness. So that's number two, as you witness, try to start where people are, not where you wish them to be. It's so tempting to unload our package. We should talk about things they're interested in. Take time. One of the great things you'll find is, is in North America today, people have got this pluralism it's, it's ingrained in Canada. You talk to people and say, well, yeah, I, I think the main thing is, I know there's a lot of religion, but the main thing is to be sincere. <laughs> I, I, uh, we need to show them that sincerity is not a criteria for truth. The gospel is based on truth and evidence. And you can well, it doesn't matter what you believe. I, I wish I'd cut this out because I have no time, but there's Charlie Brown, 184 to nothing. He's not, I don't understand it. He says, how can you lose when you're so sincere? People think that way. And they believe crazy things out You, We heard about, from Micah, what they believe in Peru about snakes and all sorts. Of, people believe things today, maybe not as bad as Charlie Brown and, 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 and Linus here. He says, all right, so you believe in Santa Claus, I'll believe in the great pumpkin, but he says, the way I see it, it doesn't matter what you believe, so much as, so long as you're sincere. Listen, everything depends on what you believe. Sincerity is not a criteria for truth. And we need to tailor our witness to the background and circumstances of the person we're talking to. Listen, I had to talk to a lot of professors with intellectual objections. Um, they needed a totally different approach from a woman who came to me and said, how could I believe in a God when my son was run over and killed in an accident? And I had to say, his son died too. And they're talking a completely different way. You, you think of, you think of uh, the way Stephen talked here with the way Paul talked in Athens. I don't tend to go into that, but you know, Paul's great sermon march, it was so different. So that's number three. What we have to do is try to clear away the things that prevent unbelievers from seeing the truth of the gospel. The Athenians had one set of issues. The Sanhedrin had another set of issues. But we've got to clear things away so they can see clearly. I love this cartoon of the old guy sitting with his wife and he says, what are you looking at? She stares at the window. She said, well, our neighbor's windows look so dirty. In fact, the whole house looks dirty. Well, he goes to work with the Windex and uh, then she says, well, never mind. <laughs> never mind. Of course, she was looking through this distorted, dirty window and drawing the wrong conclusion. And that's what people do. They don't see the clarity of the gospel. And what you've got to do is get them to say, never mind what I thought. I see clearly now. You've got to get them to say, I want to know the truth. I want to find God's acceptance. But all that stuff has to be cleared away. And what did Stephen do to do it? <laughs> Very simple, he used scripture to establish his case. I've got to tell you folks, witnessing is never about your opinions. So tempting. You come here and someone says, uh, 
He says something about your election results. He says, well, in my opinion, and you start talking about your political opinions. Witnessing's not about our opinions, even about God. You don't say, I think this, I think that. It's about what God has said in his word, what Christ says about what God wants us. So you can be like Billy Graham every day and say, well, the Bible says. And you can say what God wants is what he's told us he wants. So, so, what did Stephen do? He, t- he talked about their heritage. He talked about the key leaders in the history of Israel. He talked about the big names every Jew admired and wanted to emulate. And what he got to Moses. You say Moses, and Jesus changed Moses' teaching. Well, he answers that. He goes to the scriptures. He said, look, even Moses was a failure when he acted in his own wisdom. He succeeded when God empowered him, when God commissioned him. And and he dealt with things. When it came to the temple, he said, well, look, the prophets have clearly said, verse 44 and 50, he said, the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Did not my hand make all these things? He quotes scripture to correct the thing. Stephen tells him what Isaiah said, he said, look, Isaiah predicted the temple wouldn't always remain as an adequate place to worship God. You're hung up on the temple, but read the scriptures. And so he makes it clear in verses 48 through 50, no building could ever be adequate for God, his permanent dwelling. It's impossible, he can't be confined to a temple. And this is a very important point, you see, he's using scripture, but he's clear about the nature of God. People have crazy ideas about God as a force, a mysterious thing behind the universe. We've got to be clear about the nature of God that that Scripture and Christ reveals. We can't think our way through to God, but God can show himself to us. Shows himself through Scripture. Talk about Revelation. Shows himself through Christ. So you've got to get to the point, look, we believe in a creator God, a personal God, not a, 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 a vague force. And he can't be confined in time and space. You can't think big. There is a reality outside this material, three-dimensional world. And I get a chance to talk about molecules and materialism and stuff like that. But you've got to realize, so many people are like children. They make God so small. They're like that little boy. He said to his mom, he said, where's God? She said, well, he's everywhere. I said, is he in our house? She said, yes. Why is he in this room? Well, yes, she said. Well, he said, is he in this cup? Well, she was a bit, well, yes, she said. Oh, he said, I've got him. <laughs> and he put his hand, you can't get God like that. You can't confine God. That's what he's saying. Think big. And they, they see, the Jewish leaders were focusing on the temple because what it represented was what they'd done. They built the temple. Man, we read this morning about Jesus of course, talking about his death and resurrection, destroying the temple in three days, and they remind him, oh, we took a long time building the temple. They, they stress their achievements. And this is what people do. They love to talk about their achievements. You've, you've got to get to the point of saying the gospel's nothing to do with our accomplishments. And people aren't used to this. Everything's about accomplishments. They want to say, hey, hey, you've got a doctorate. Man, you, you did this and the other. The gospel calls us to accept what Christ has done 
and rely on his finished work on the cross. Unless you get to that point, you haven't shared the gospel. We have to be clear about the nature of the God that Scripture reveals, but we have to get across the gospel. It's nothing to do with our accomplishments. And the main thrust of Stephen's exposition of the Old Testament history is to show that after Christ, after God's initial appearance, I'm sorry, going back in history now, to Abraham, what, what, what Stephen is at pains to show is that every stage in God's plans, um, with a corresponding call, of course, for Israel to change their practice, every change have been explicitly announced and promised by God long before it happened. Very important point. So you look at verses 6 and 17. It said, look, with respect to Jacob's move to Egypt, with respect to Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt, all that was announced by God to Abraham 400 years earlier. No big surprises. Very important in your witness to the truth of the gospel, don't forget the importance of fulfilled prophecy. You know, you should pick this stuff up at the back. It's great to see a church that gives resources. Warren Henderson's book, packed with good stuff to pass on to people, but one of the chapters is about the importance of fulfilled prophecy. Hey, look, you've got, if the guy says, I can't believe in God, science shows us that God doesn't exist, use the atheist delusion. This is a powerful little tool. Use this book. Don't just... Because we've got to make these apologetic points. The, the, the scientific evidence is clear. I've talked about that before. The, the, the fulfilled prophecy is an enormously important thing because it provides compelling evidence both for the accuracy of Scripture and the truth of Christ's claims. It's a very important truth. And Stephen stresses in verse 37, look, listen to this. It was Moses himself who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from your own brethren like he raised me up. And look at 52, verse 52, he reinforced it. He said, many prophets talked about this. And it's very important that God pre-announced his plans. You know that from Hebrews Hebrews 7 and 10, we read it this morning, which says, look, the new covenant will abolish these Old Testament sacrifices. And it was announced by prophets and psalms centuries before the coming of Christ. We've got to use this stuff. Let me say one little side issue. I'm time for bunny trails, but this is important. For us today... The, the development of God's plans like Stephen talked about in the Old Testament stands in contrast to the New Testament. Don't think God's still doing that. No part of the gospel, no part of the way the church is structured will ever be discarded in favor of something better. I want to say that because, you know, we need... Well, what does the scripture say? Jude 3 reminds us, God's instructions for the church have been once for all delivered to the saints. So what we did this morning, this doing remembers of me is until he come. It's, it's not a temporary thing. Uh, so there's just a little point about that. But I need to get back to Stephen's defense in the last five minutes or so. Because towards the end of his defense, Stephen makes the big move 
He's reviewed God's dealings with Israel. He's been through all that. Now he's becoming the man who challenges, the challenging preacher. Notice, you read this story, he shifts his tenses from the past to the present. He changes from they and them to you. Now he's applying and he says to you. You see, he gets frank and personal. And in the end, you've got to do that. You can talk in general about religion. You can talk about all this stuff. But in the end, you've got to call for you and your responsibility. That was uh, to do with the last point. Forgot to show that. But he finally challenges them to acknowledge their sin, to repent and confess the dreadful thing they'd done. And that's where you've got to go. In the end, we do have to challenge people about the need to choose because you can't, you can't stay neutral. The fence is too thin to sit on. And Stephen had to go there. And that's where he went. So this is number seven. In the end, challenge people about the need to choose. Now, of course, such was the power and persuasion of Stephen's message that they were convicted. Look, verse 54 in King James says, they were cut to the heart. But you see, God always leaves us to choose. You know, no one's arm twisted into the kingdom. There's no force. I love this cartoon, the guy's at the end of the spear. This is crusade stuff, not the way we witness. But he says, tell me more about your Christianity. I'm really interested. There's no coercion. There's no, there's no, whatever we say, they still have the tools. Of course, tragically, and then in the end, these Sanhedrin reject. They begin to cry out, they gnash their teeth. And, uh, well... There's a lot to be said about that, but in the end, they had two faces to witness. They saw Stephen's radiant face, and this is the saw. I should make it clear, jumping fast, because I want to just mention Paul's conversion in the next chapter. Its foundation was laid in this chapter. And what Paul saw was a radiant face of Stephen and the distorted faces of the Sanhedrin. Stephen's face reflected joy and peace. The Sanhedrin, as they gnashed their teeth, there was a stark contrast that Paul would never forget. And I want to remind you that you witness with more than words. You do need words to explain the gospel. I'm not one of those who say, well, I'll just witness with your life. No, you have to explain. But it's talk and walk together. And our face and our demeanor and our care and our attitude they're the testimony that I think often speaks more eloquently to back up the words that are needed to explain the gospel. The gospel needs words to explain it. But Stephen's face was different. He didn't have to look at the grim faces of the Sanhedrin. Look what it says. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God. Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heavens open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a way to die. Man, and I've seen that happen. Don't think this is just stuff in the Bible. How many times have I seen Christians, as they die, the smile comes on their face. Jane missed it when her 46-year-old daughter died because she was standing behind her comfort. And I saw it. It happens. And, and this is the wonder of it all. And, and you see, and, and I am trying to talk about this. People argue about why Jesus was standing. He's supposed to be sitting at the right hand of God. 
I don't know what it was to welcome Stephen or just to be an advocate for Stephen or to judge the Sanhedrin. But the certain truth is what he saw was Christ at God's right hand, the place of power and authority and majesty. And you keep that vision in mind. Saul saw it. He watched with approval, making sure they followed the rules given in the law for the stoning. But he was affected by what he saw in Stephen's face. And from the death of Stephen, the faithful witness, you know the huge expansion that came to the church. And this event so challenged Saul that when the Lord called him, he was ready to go. And he changed from persecutor to pers- he changed from the persecutor to being persecuted himself. That's a story for another day. But I want to finish with this reminder. As Stephen died, that death is a transition of the spirit to be consciously with the Lord to await a new resurrection body. I'm going to talk about that at Bible Truth. But you know, death is to be with our Lord who waits to receive us in his presence. And with Christ it is far better. Never forget that because you have to, in the end, remind them, this is number nine, the gospel is about something beyond death. It's about everlasting life in another world. And it's a stark reminder of that. So there it is. It's a huge challenge because all who seek to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But I want to tell you folks, as I finish this morning, when the choice is between rejection by men and reception by God, the decision is not hard to make. You think of Stephen's reception. Is it hard to decide I'm going to please men or I'm going to be ready for the Lord? Paul said, he said, look, our light of friction, you will be persecuted, you will be rejected, people will hold a nose when they walk by you. But our light of friction, which is but for a moment, works for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. So that's it. You've done well. It is 12.15, so I'm going to review. Get it. You have to go on the internet if you've got short-term memory problems, but this is it. Number one, remember your source of power is the Holy Spirit. Number two, as you witness, try to start where people are. Don't worry where you want them to be. You start where they are. That's where God starts. Try to clear away the things that prevent unbelievers from seeing the truth of the gospel. It's personal witness we're talking. I'll talk about large group evangelism tonight with the next one. Four, use scripture to establish a case and be clear about the nature of God that scripture and Christ reveal. Remember, the gospel is nothing to do with our accomplishments. That's a big stumbling block. And in the end, you have to challenge people about the need to choose. You have to go... And of course, I hope you're backing it with more than words. And we'll talk more about this tonight when we get to Philip. Oh, man, but remember the gospel's about everlasting life in another world. So is that it? No, it's not it. Number 10's missing. You've got to know what it is. What, what's missing? Come on, guys. What's me? You're doing it. You've got a day of prayer and fasting. Man, you've got to pray and you've got to pray and you've got to pray. And I'm so encouraged by Boulevard. What a church. We've got to pray. We're going to have a day to pray. We're going to have an early morning prayer. We're going to show the Lord we mean it. You will see souls saved. And in these troubled times, I want to call you to do what, what Micah said last night. Just do it. 
better than me. I, I don't practice what I preach in this, I've got to tell you. To witness more boldly for our Lord. When I listened to Malcolm's answer machine, I thought, what a coward I am. We've got to do it. Because for us like Stephen, there will be a wonderful moment when we'll see Jesus. You can't imagine the indescribable joy when he says to you, I mean, just to you, a, a regular guy who failed the Lord so many times, well done, good and faithful servant, you enter the joy of your Lord. Let's do it. The Nike commercial said the same as the Bible. Just do it. Father, help us, we pray. We're so weak and failing, we forget the big picture. But we ask in Jesus' name that you'll help us to be more faithful in our witness for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.